Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hey, hey, how's it going? This is If and When, my podcast. This is Ian Foster. Thanks for listening. I'm currently pacing my studio floor SM7B in hand. That's the thing I love about this microphone. If you're an artist who's ever been in the CBC or anyone else who's ever been in the CBC, you've spoken into this microphone. If you're an artist who heard the Jeff Tweedy once sang into this microphone and then bought one for yourself, you also know this microphone. It's cool because unlike most microphones, you can hold it in your hand and feel cool like I feel. I don't feel that way. But you can do that. Anyway... I'm just deciding I'm going to stand up and and give this little intro this time just to get a bit of energy because I'm recording it in the evening and I'm a little bit tired. It's the end of a tour for us. We toured around Newfoundland for the last couple of weeks, played some wonderful shows, hung out with some great people. Thanks so much to everybody who came out and checked out those shows. It was a real thrill to see the island in the summer again, to get a little bit of uh, of vacation time in some of the really amazing spots like Gross Morn where we had a a day. Um, And I also taped some episodes of the podcast on the road. I'm going to call them field recordings. Isn't that cute? Um, I did an episode with Shirley Montague, an amazing artist uh, from Labrador, and also one with Eric West, who is also a great artist in his own right. And he's done a bunch of um, transcriptions of books for Buddy What's His Name and the Other Fellas, for Ron Hines and, and others. So both really great chats that you can look forward to later in the fall. What else is going on? Well, it's the end of summer. We, we've got this, this crazy humidity going on. It's the summer storms, the big news, the hurricane stuff. If you're following this podcast in real time, that's sort of what's happening right now. And I'm not ready for summer to end, but there it is. You know, it's another one. Almost finished. We'll see. It's Newfoundland. It could be warm until December. It could snow tomorrow. You never know. Regardless, there's some cool projects I'm working on this fall. I'm really happy to announce, I can finally announce this on the podcast, that I'm doing my very first live episode of If and When at the rooms of all places, fancy, uh, with Mary Walsh, the legendary Mary Walsh. We're going to be sitting in the lecture hall having a chat, recording it for you to listen here, but if you live in St. John's, you can come to that show. So further details soon, but October 20th, mark it on your calendar. Hope to see you there. There's going to be a couple of more of those as well in the future, but more details on those soon. I'm excited to get out and mumble my way through introductions like this one in front of a live audience of people. It should be interesting. My guest today, Justin Sims, a filmmaker of some really great films and... I'm happy to say a friend. We've known each other for several years now. We worked together on a project of Justin's called Handline Cod, which was a mini doc about the fishery on Fogel Island. I was lucky enough to score that film. It is the first film that I've been involved in that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. That was very cool for me, but it was particularly cool to work with Justin. He's such a chill guy. Um, but is a very thoughtful guy, as you'll hear when you listen to this episode. And uh, we formed a friendship since then, and we've we've started a little work on another project of his called uh, Sex and Cars, which you have to say is a project first, as you'll hear here, because that's a funny title to just go, so yeah, we're in Sex and Cars, you know? That's just something you can't say in the street, necessarily. So over these two parts, we talk about his upbringing, his love of Indiana Jones early on, which I certainly relate to very, very much. He's going to film school and a bunch of those films that he has worked on over the years. We talk a little bit about streaming and how that works both in film and in music. We even talk a little about podcasts, so a bit meta, I suppose. 
Anyway, I hope you enjoy part one of my conversation with filmmaker Justin Sims. It's only my comfort level with like you as a friend yep. that's allowing me to do this. Oh, really? <clears throat> you don't need to do these, these kind of things? Well, I mean, uh, not that you have to include any of this or anything, yeah, yeah. but I have a speech impediment mm-hmm. um, that when I'm like chill and relaxed and stuff, it's not really there. Right. But if I'm tired or if I'm nervous or if I'm tense, mm-hmm. so historically, like uh, if I've had to be on the radio, uh, it's been a disaster. Hmm. Right. Interesting. Because we have been friends for a long time now, and I've never talked to you about that speech impediment. Yeah. Like, what do you, I mean, do you mind if I ask you? No, do. Yeah. Whether we record it now or, I mean, it's, it's rolling. Oh yeah. That's the nature of these, as you know. So tell me, like, where did Uh, did it come from? Well, I mean, I've always had it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was a, it was more of a thing when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And I'll say more of a thing in a psychological way. Um, so I kind of kept to myself a lot and was pretty quiet up until maybe grade 11, grade 12. That was when I kind of started to come out of my shell. And then as I became an adult, you start to, I won't say care about it less, but you kind of accept it a little more realistically in terms of like, it's a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the only thing that um, defines you, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you're 12 and 13 and at that really awkward stage, you know, having a really bad stutter uh, is not fun, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you end up kind of pretty introspective. and um, Yeah, so one thing that really hasn't changed, though, is when I have to do a radio interview and it's live and it's like, you know, you have to be there at a certain time and you've had the whole like morning or day to worry about it, knowing that, you know, this is not when you're going to sound your best. And, um, yeah, so this is how we ended up down this rabbit hole right off the top is that, uh, if you were some person who I didn't know, who said, Hey, do you want to be on my podcast? I probably would have said no. Right. Yeah. And I mean, this is obviously not a nice way to start the podcast, but anyway, no, it's yeah, totally I'm just fine. very actually, struck by it that I'm here with a microphone in front of me and sure. we're going to chat for an undetermined amount of time. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny, like when you talk about um, the stutter and growing up with it and being that age and all that stuff, I mean, I grew up like such a nerdy kid and mm-hmm. I feel like what, you know, all these things contribute to that stereotype of like, you know, the, the, the jock is not going to be the, the deep artist, you know, because he's like super good looking and hasn't had any, hasn't had any problems in his life. You know, like what he hasn't, he hasn't, he hasn't been the outsider watching things unfold, which is how I felt all those years growing up. Like I was a super shy kid, super nerdy kid. Like I would be like, uh, Oh look, there's like a boyfriend and girlfriends and it's super easy for them. And for me, it's like a big deal at my first girlfriend, all that stuff growing up. And Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I can't help but think that that contributes to like how I make stuff. Absolutely. I mean, I think I would be the same. Like it's strange. Like when I think about films that I really love and films that really inspired me, it was always the dialogue that I love the most. Mm. And I've become really like, I'm a huge Aaron Sorkin fan, David Mamet, like um, those sorts of people where the dialogue is really what's driving the story. Mm -hmm. And I think it's related, you know what I mean? In in terms of my own experience. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, like when you're young, you can often have this kind of like, uh, imaginary self mm. where you're either really good looking or you're like super strong or whatever and like mine was always that I was this great speaker I was right. just like fluent and I could you know great with a one line or perfect timing uh, always the perfect thing to say and <clears throat> all that exists anyway sort of in your mind so right. right but it really had no way out that was reliable. Right. right? So I think that that has completely informed, I think, where 
a lot of my interests are in film. We're going to get right into that, actually, because I want to talk about like first film and stuff that that grabbed you and and all that. But just, you know, let, let's begin at the start. Where were you born and when were you born? Okay. Um, interestingly enough, I was born in Lab City. Do you know what? I'm going to jump in already. Okay. See how rude an interviewer I am. Yeah. I read that today on your Wikipedia. <laughs> I have a Wikipedia? You do. And I, I Googled you. And I know we've been friends for a while now, but I was like, <laughs> I should Google Justin just to make sure that he hasn't like won an Academy Award I don't know about that I'm going to forget to mention. But uh, yeah, no, yeah, you have a Wikipedia. None of those. Shocked at that. I didn't know I had a Wikipedia page. Mm. I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. So Lab City. Written by you, isn't it? You can it, tell me. You I, can tell me. I created a Wikipedia page for you just today. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm so touched. No like, problem, man. Yeah. No problem. It's important, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Lab City. Lab City, but we were only there until, uh, like, I don't think I was even a year old uh, before uh, we uh, ended up uh, moving out of it there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, generally, uh, I tell people I'm from Mount Pearl. Mm-hmm. I lived there from, I think I was two years old until my early 20s. Okay. Uh, yeah. Cool. Cool. And, uh, and and so when was that first moment in, that you remember were like kind of, you know, the first film that you saw that, that really mattered? Man, it was probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wicked. Yeah. I guess that was 1981, so I would have been like eight or nine, which is really like the age for that film. And it was just like a film that I remember seeing multiple times in the movie theater, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that my dad and I would go to movies a lot. Cool. And I know that we saw that one a bunch of times, maybe like three times even. Right. And uh, definitely one of the movies that I've seen the most. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a great film. Like, it completely holds up. Yes. Right? And you realize, like, you can watch a film multiple times over the course of years. Mm -hmm. And depending on your own life experiences, it kind of changes how you watch that film. Mm -hmm. So even though it's a narrative drama where theoretically nothing ever changes in the movie, whether you watch it now or watch it in 50 years... Mm The fact that you watch it once when you're a kid and then you watch it once when you're in your teens and you watch it in your 20s, you watch it in your 30s. So the film kind of completely changes its own message and what you receive from it and what you can see in it. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, that was a gigantic film. I love that movie so much. And I've also watched it regularly since childhood. I read just recently that, um, Steven Soderbergh teaches, with that film at some college somewhere and he's actually shown it um in uh as a silent black and white film where they strip the color out as a way to teach blocking that's on his website actually is it and i have watched that cool it's pretty fascinating yeah 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 awesome i i just i think that it's so underrated when you can make a movie that's like a kid's popcorn movie that has that level of artistry to it like all the way up Absolutely. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And it is the artistry of it that is so wonderful, I think. Right? Yeah, totally. And just, man, Indiana Jones is like... Come on. Especially if you're like a nerdy young kid. Totally. Because that was what they got right about and why, you know, Harrison Ford was so fabulous was like he got the nerd side of the character. Right. Right? When he put the glasses on and his suit and he's up in front uh right doing a lecture right and it's oh my god he's like a nerd he's like us right right Right. but then he gets out the hat and the whip and man he's like a you know that's right and then the girl blinks and she's got the things written on her eyelids yeah yeah one thing i always loved about that is like just as one like all you see is the hand as all the students are flowing out of the room it's like the last kid leaves an apple on the desk right <laughs> that's always struck me as like apple and then like in the middle of the scene Harrison Ford picks it up it starts to right awesome right. man it's the small things right I know yeah I know and I mean Spielberg is so good for that it's always like something going on in the background that you don't need to see but it'll make it better when you do Spielberg I think t- takes a, like I'm not a like I'm not a, a Spielberg fanatic or anything mm-hmm. and I've t- 
definitely noticed, say, in the 2010s, that Spielberg has kind of started to get a bad rap in a way, is like kind of uh, representing something that isn't like um, worthy anymore. Mm. Kind of like a big Hollywood or whatever. Right. But man, like we all, and I suppose I speak to all my Gen Xers out there, right? Is we all kind of grew up watching Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T., I mean, all the films. And like he taught film to a lot of people. Right. Whether he knew he was or not, or whether we knew that we were or not. Right. That, you know, that's what we were t- taking from it. Right. But that's why it's so great to watch Raiders uh, the last Lost Ark now. is like it's so classically uh, fabulous, right? Like the wide shots and the blocking within them and the c- cutting and the lighting and everything. It's so kind of like classic Hollywood, but cool and vibrant. And it's like, um, yeah, I feel like Spielberg gets an unfair bad rap these days. I Yeah, I find those kind of iterations of someone's career really interesting. Like when you look at, say, like Springsteen, like there was a period Springsteen wasn't cool. Now he's like more than cool. Right. But there was a period no one cared. Sure. Like Leonard Cohen definitely went through that. Yeah. Like he was, he went out on top, but like there was many years people totally did not care about Cohen. Like yeah. there's those, those peaks and valleys of, of a career. It also reminds me of something that Agnes Walsh said when she was in here, she was talking about, um, I think, I think she was talking about like poetry being a young person's game, which I thought was really interesting and that she's like kind of hard on herself now and, and all of this sort of thing. And I'm wondering how you feel about that in filmmaking. Like, do you think that there is uh, not an age limit, but do you think that there's like a, a sweet spot for directors? And I'm thinking about this only in relation to what you're saying about Spielberg. Maybe you're talking about public perception more than his actual artistic output. Like, do you think he's past his prime? Do you think there is a prime typically? I think there is a prime, Mm -hmm. but I think that history has shown us certainly in film that it's hard to predict where that prime is in terms of a filmmaker. Right. Different for different people. Right. Yeah. Like Clint Eastwood really didn't hit his sweet spot till he was in his 70s. Right. Akira Kurosawa, one could argue, made some of his greatest films when he was in his 80s. Right. Uh, and he said actually a really good uh, quote that always struck, stuck with me was... Uh, I think he had just gotten an honorary Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And I think he was in his 80s. And he said in his speech, I'm only just now beginning to figure it out. Hmm. Like beginning to figure out a film. Right. And I always thought, wow, like that's an excellent, like a, that's a really good thing to keep in mind. Right. So, yeah, there probably is a prime. But, and poetry is a whole other ball game, really. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I wanted to say about that, why like I might not necessarily, even though I love Agnes and I'm a big fan, Mm -hmm. um, wisdom is a really cool thing Mm -hmm. and it's very readable and it's very um, receivable. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, everything is a young person's game in a way. Life is a young person's game. Mm. But I love... um, films and filmmakers and writers uh, who have wisdom mm. that's kind of hard one mm. and um, that's the stuff that I really like anyway yeah uh, and uh, you can only get wisdom one way right and that's by getting old so and I think there's lots of examples of um, great filmmakers who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s and great poets I mean Right. Yeah. Um, the art of wisdom. Totally. Wisdom is very receivable. I like that. I like that as a, as an idea. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's, uh, this, the whole thing is going to be like this, by the way. It's just going to be <laughs> random tangents, which it's, is great. Here's a tangent for you about the receivability of stuff. Yes. Like it's not necessarily about the stuff. It's about your ability to take it in right like i just read a thing uh nick cave wrote about how uh recently about how you don't necessarily write a song it's more that you kind of open up and the song finds you 
right? And that uh, where you are psychologically and emotionally really is going to tell the tale of are you open to the song or is the song going to pass you by and not see you? And is it going to go to the next person? And I, when I read that, I thought that that was absolutely true because like you can hear a song or hear a band and not really like it, but then hear them 20 years later, right? And suddenly it's the most brilliant thing in the world. And it's like the song hasn't changed at all, but your ability to hear what's in there has changed. Like you've opened up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that's the same for a film. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I was just reminded of, um, you know, something I did last summer. I played this, this festival up in Ottawa and I was talking to this other, this member of this other band after the set. And, you know, I mean, over the years, obviously playing gigs, you get compliments, I guess, you know, here and there. But there's some reason this one really stuck with me. And I think it's related to what you said. It was like an earlier set in the day and very early in the set, like a whole bunch of people kind of came down and like got into the main zone of the festival area. Right. And we were kind of chatting. We were like, you know, having that kind of musician to musician like i was kind of worried there for a minute but like things you know kind of people you know it turned into a really nice set everyone was there you know all that stuff and and he went yeah you know he's like they they really like came down and like got into that spell that you were casting and he phrased it that way which is obviously a compliment i'm not saying it for the sake of you know re-uttering a compliment but i'd never heard it put that way of all the things ever said to me like that specific way and i totally like Outside of the fact that it's about me, I totally understood what he meant because it's Mm -hmm. kind of what we're talking about. It's Mm -hmm. like if you were ready to receive and be there and experience it, you're like, what a great set. But like if you were up on the hill, people would be like, oh, this sounds all right. And that's the difference. Like in a music scenario of like whether you watched and were like, yeah, they were good or being like, this was mind blowing. I love this, whatever it is, you know. And I mean, it's not unlike sitting down and watch a movie when you're in a bad mood and it's like an art film that is actually really well made and deep, but you're like, you know, I had a horrible day. I just need to watch a Marvel movie, you know, and you're just irritated by the art film because you're just like, Oh my God, really? And it's subtitles. Like, I feel like there's an element of that, even for the the smartest, deepest people, like you need to be ready to receive something. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. 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 But I mean, like to, uh, I, I guess, yeah. So like to bring it back to the idea of wisdom, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the age thing, mm. right? And it's like, um, you know, the older that you are, the more that you think about the stuff and the more that you actually do, I think it's the wisdom that allows you to be open. Right. Right? Right. Uh, not to get a completely new agey here, but... No. And it's also, you know, it, it it's not surface. That's the point. It's wisdom. So it it is more difficult to receive. Yeah. If, if it is cotton candy. Yeah. You can just sort of, it can glide yeah. over you and be like, well, that, that thing served the purpose that it was trying to be, which was cotton candy. If it's something that might be a bit more real to receive, you have to be ready for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think about that a lot now in terms of just movies, like in, in g- general. Because like virtually everybody now consumes everything via streaming, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's not very often, certainly not in my, like in anyone that I know really, who will go to a movie theater multiple times in a month. Right. right. So everything is kind of, uh, there's no line of d- d- demarcation anymore between what's a TV show and what's a movie, mm. what's a video and uh, what's not. And um, our ability to watch tough, I think, because this is now the way that it has been for quite some time and it's certainly not going to change at all. So I often wonder about, <clears throat> you know, do people know how to watch a two and a half hour kind of hardcore art film anymore? Mm-hmm. Like, is that sort of like a dying art form? Mm-hmm. And, and has, our, ha, has the way that we receive media what kind of an impact will that have on the way that we make it? Because it has to have an impact. It's like we kind of have to make stuff to be consumed in the manner that people are currently consuming it, right? Totally. And like I feel like a lot of us, and I'll say us in like the 
air quotes way, like mm-hmm. a lot of people making content, more quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really important thing to consider and to think about. And um, yeah, like I think like a lot of p- people, I certainly lament sort of the loss of um, art house adult drama. Mm. On a movie screen. Right. It still exists, of course, but now it's a 12-part series or a 10-part series or an 8-part mini-series. But like the kind of angsty dramas that uh, I certainly loved growing up and stuff, I think that that still exists. It's just the form of it has changed now. It's not the standalone hour and a half. Yeah. Or two hours that it always was. Yeah. I mean, I think like... I think we talked about um, House on Haunted Hill, maybe. Maybe we texted about this series because, so. you know. Um, and, I mean, this is not even Art House. This is, you know, a fairly mainstream series. But it's extremely well done, very well written, very well acted. I, it's one of the few things in recent years that's that of that length, like 10 episodes, that I rewatched recently with a group of friends who hadn't seen it and were like, we have to watch this. I, I just think it's really well made. It's, it makes a lot of great points about grief. It's like scratches the horror itch for me. Like there's there's a lot to that series that's that's really well made. And I remember finishing it and just basking in that rewatch glow of being like, fuck, this was as good as I remember the first time. I lo- It was better because there's a ton of things that you sort of connect. And it's one of those series, you know? And in a way, people go, the golden age of cinema is upon us because of stuff like that. And there's so much of it coming out. And at the exact moment I finished and was having that glow with this particular show, this was just a few months ago, I remember thinking, this time next week, I'll have already watched some other stuff and this will have been dulled. In a way... That would have wouldn't have been possible before. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I'm not sure. <clears throat> like, I'll be honest and frank. Like, I'm not sure what my next. Like, I'm gonna make a documentary next. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say for the next year or so, and I'm not sure after that what I want to do in terms of like uh, try to get another feature film made in the traditional way, mm-hmm. or just try to completely kind of shake it up and um, let a little bit of the reality of how people consume kind of influence how I want to make stuff. Mm-hmm. I know that we're going to talk about sex and cars uh, at some point, and I, I, I guess that that's a part of that sort of experiment as well. Totally. Right? For those listening, uh, that is Justin's new project, not something he and I have done together as a <laughs> term. <laughs> You're right. I'm going to have to start thinking about that when I just like <laughs> say the title. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, okay, let's let's go back again. Um, so, Radio's the Lost Ark, you know, um, growing up in the Pearl. Uh, I assume you've seen this Mount Pearl Anthem rap video, yes. by the way. What, yes. What's your thoughts? Yes. Um, I thought it was funny. <laughs> I'm not sure it has to be much else, really. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it, yeah, I liked it. Was it accurate to your childhood growing up to a degree? I think so. Seemed to be lots of references in there. Very, yeah. spe- very, very specific references. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that was what I meant about, like, say, I guess maybe one of the major examples of this, of what we were t- talking about in terms of like ability to receive and right. how it evolves over time. Right. Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah, okay. Right. Mount Pro Kid, suburbs all the way. Right. Very kind of classicist high school. So I just wasn't into Pink Floyd. Right. And couldn't get Pink Floyd and would make fun of Pink Floyd. And somehow Pink Floyd kind of iconically represented something to me at the time of like what was wrong with the world. Right. Or what was wrong with like art. Right. At the time. Right. Then it's like cut to, I guess, early when I was in film school. Mm-hmm. So like years had passed and I was living on my own outside of the Mount Pearl sort of bubble, mm-hmm. right? And had had some experiences and uh, for about the probably fifth time in my life, somebody said, man, you have to hear mother, right? Or the wall, actually, mm-hmm. like you have to hear the wall, but... I'd be like, okay, I guess if you're going to make me this, so well, I guess so well, I guess. <laughs> and it was like, 
at that. And then like, that was the time when it was like, boom, I was ready. Right. 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 And realized that like the wall is one of the seminal works of art of humanity. Right. Um, so I always kind of uh, tried to remember that arc that I went on, right? Because um, I think it's a good thing to remind yourself, even as you age, that like what you think now, even passionately what you think now, there is no guarantee that that is what you're going to think in five years' time or ten years' time. Right. And it does not pay to be certain. But luckily, you'll have a Twitter thread where people can go back and go, but Justin, you clearly felt this way once, so now yeah, we're yeah. going to... I've never tweeted about Pink Floyd. Maybe I've always been afraid of... The uh... opinion will change again. Yeah. Or like, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, yeah. how did we end up on Pink Floyd? I'm sorry, man. It's totally fine. This is, this is the okay. point. This is great. This is great. Uh, this will be in part one of nine. And... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. So tell me about, um, uh, I, I guess just those early years, you know, so where, where did, where did film actually start to become a, a thing that you did? Well, the earliest, like, uh, I made a really good friend, uh, in about, I guess, grade nine or 10, Phil Hogan. And, uh, he is the one, like up to that point, I really didn't have the movie bug yet, mm -hmm. but I remember going into his room and he'd have like movie posters up on his wall. Mm -hmm. He had one, it was to give you a sense of the era, uh, Tom Cruise, Days of Thunder. Oh, classic. The racing car movie. Yeah. Directed by Tony Scott. Right. Uh, Ridley's brother, the late t -t Tony Scott. Right. And, um, is Days of Thunder... After or before Top Gun? I can't remember. I don't know. Oh, after. It's, after. It's, it is after. But very much kind of Top Gun, but racing cars. Right. Yeah. Right? Right. Um, in that he's the young maverick who won't follow the rules. and Right? Right, right. Uh, but a young Nicole K K Kidman as well. Um, and Robert Duvall as like the k coach or the manager or whatever you call okay. it. Okay, yeah. Um, and anyway, I was all impressed that he like knew who the filmmaker was. He was like, oh, he did this other movie. And I was like, whoa. whoa. Right. And I think if you have that kind of core nerdiness, it's like anything to be obsessive about, you kind of like automatically t tune in. Yes. Right? Yes. As a subscriber to vinyl, uh, vinyl Facebook groups for vinyl <laughs> records, I'm very aware of this phenomenon. Go yes. On. Yes. So anyway, yeah. And uh, he and I, I guess, made a couple of like um, movies on my high eight camera where oh. i got a high eight camera yeah and i think he and i probably wrote a 178 page screenplay for he and i and our friends at the time cool and um <laughs> probably shot like a quarter of it maybe right uh and we edited it from um vhs to vhs that's pretty hardcore yeah and i mean like really editing vhs to vhs it wasn't like you know, stringing shots together. It was like cut to the close up here. Right. And then we're going to cut to that same close up again over here. So it was just like incredibly complex. I've often thought about how I wouldn't be able to replicate that now. I feel like I've lost too many brain cells, quite frankly. Right. But hardcore VHS to VHS editing is not f for the faint of heart. Right. Totally. Anyways. Um, yeah, so I mean, that was probably the very core of actually doing something was Phil and I and our friendship. And we wrote probably two or three kind of feature film scripts that were reflective of our interests at the time. Like one was about vampires. Oh, here's another uh, to get a sense of the era. We wrote a vampire script for P Patrick Swayze. He was like one of the major kind of A-list stars at the time. And it was like, Patrick Swayze will play twin vampires, man. <laughs> and yeah, and we wrote the whole thing. That's great. Yeah. And there were other ones. So yeah, that was, and he loved to watch movies and I loved to watch movies. I mean, and this was like the VHS era. So yeah. Was there any, uh, was there any indication in to you at the time that that would be what you did with your life? Uh, 
any indication? I mean, like to you, did you feel like this is what I'm going to do, or were you like, this is a fun thing, and I'll go off and be a dentist, but then somehow came back to film? Well, I always wanted wanted to be a writer. Right. Right. So up until I met Phil and sort of got the movie bug, I wanted to be novelist. Like my big hero at that point was probably like Stephen King. Yeah. Me too, growing up. Like I've read all the Stephen King. Like I definitely, like that was my teenage, like I'm a grown up now. I'm going to read grown up books. He was the first kind of real grown up. It was Cujo. Yeah. I can remember asking my dad or my mom or somebody if it was okay if I read this. Right. Right. I was very young, but yeah, and um, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I, just like indication of uh, of of whether film would be your life or not, you know. So, yeah, r- you were thinking writer at the time. Writer at the time, and like even when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it inspired me to like write short stories, cool, and make a c- c- comic book or whatever. Right. But it wasn't until. I met Phil when it became like, wow. And like, even at that point, I hadn't really like processed that like, wow, you can write movies. Right. Right. Like actually write them in terms of like pages of words. Like, yeah, uh, I think there's something really interesting about certain mediums that way. Film and music, I think share this recorded music shares this where like as a kid, you'd be like, I can write music or I can write. But like the idea of, of the mediums, there's just that like, there's that divide where you're, it's the magic trick, right? You're like, how, how does one create this thing that's flashing before me and lights on the screen or that's coming out of my stereo? Like, it's just such a barrier for entry that you can't even imagine how it's made at first. Oh yeah. And I've, I've had multiple times in my life, I've had like legitimately, uh, grown adults have asked me like, how do you write a movie? Hmm. Right. So there is a mysterious kind of process. And then you learn that it's actually not mysterious at all. In fact, <laughs> it's pretty banal. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty, pretty banal. It's a good <laughs> word for it. <laughs> so, um, so what next? What happened after, you know, you were, you, you presumably graduated, you know, junior and high. And yeah. What, what, what happened then? Well, I guess to jump ahead, I went to film school. Right. So I graduated uh, from Mount Pearl Senior High, and I went and did, uh, I don't think it was even a year at MUN, doing like general studies. Right. It was what they called it at the time. I don't even know if that's what yeah. they call it now. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really want to go. Like the thing about kind of uh, the Mount Pearl suburb way is like everybody kind of did the same thing, right? You graduate from high school, you go to MUN, yada, yada. So I graduated from high school. I went to MUN. But I really didn't like it at all. And I'm not a conflict type of person. Like I don't seek out conflict. So it was hard for me at the time to tell mom and dad, hey, I don't like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I wasted a lot of time uh, not really doing any of the work or anything. And uh, so then like there came the point where they said, well, you know, uh, not my parents, but like the people at the university were like, well, you might want to drop out now, right? Because if you don't kind of quit now, then you're going to like fail everything. And if you fail everything, that'll really, you know, it'll hurt you in the future. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, and did all that. And um, then I just worked for a couple of years. I got a job at a factory, essentially, uh, making Nevada Tickets, the uh, break open t- no tickets. Way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Did that for like two and a half years or whatever. Wow. Just enough to realize that like this is not uh, who I am. Like lottery tickets. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even though it was fun. Yeah. Right. And it was definitely an experience that I've often looked back at. Like it was real. Like punching a time clock, shift work. Um, and uh, do you like I don't know why, but I feel like there's a comedy bit in the idea that the person who makes scratch tickets has won the anti lottery. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like all day long. Definitely. Their job is to make the tickets of the person who might one day have much more money than them. Yeah. That's a weird thing. Yeah, it's true. It's you true. don't think about certain jobs. I haven't thought know? about it like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, at the time it was great because I was actually making money. Sure. So I remember working awesome. at Urban Sound Exchange downtown when that, yeah. that was like one of my first like real person I jobs. I remember it fondly. You know, and like, uh, and at Chapters, you know, those were my, mm. those were my like not at Mun, 
you know, for like whatever amount of money the programs paid. Those were the real people jobs that you're like, okay, this is what I remember being at like chapters and being like, you know, I could get a Starbucks drink, but it's an hour of my wage in money. Do I want to spend an hour of my wage to get one drink? Yeah. Shit. You know, the other interesting thing about that job, now that I think about it, I don't know if you've ever experienced this was like, there was, I guess there's a long stretch of it, maybe even like as much as a year where I was working nights. Mm. So like your shift would be from, I think 4 PM till the next morning. Okay. Right. And like work a night shift for that long. Uh, it that because I think I I sort of learned over that as I look back that experience it definitely changes your constitution and mm. your how you kind of relate to the world and totally right when you're totally. a creature of the night totally uh, so that was another interesting thing I mean being a that. musician you know in the earliest sure. years playing bars were like you're you know even if you're not having a party you're like not getting out of there till four. Yeah. 4 30 yeah. you know yeah same Absolutely. same idea yeah so i mean uh, um i finally was like okay enough of this and i was always an apathetic um student uh so my high school grades weren't that great my mom grades weren't that great so i wanted to go to film school but i wasn't going to go to ryerson or anything like that wasn't going to be in the cards so uh i applied to a bunch of different kind of colleges basically and got accepted at niagara college of applied arts and technology and uh went there for three years it's up in uh, welland ontario and uh that was pretty fundamental right and and really informed um everything uh i was very lucky that i got to make a lot of films there Mm Like at the time, everybody was shooting on film, right? Mm-hmm. And the high-end film schools, uh, when you went there, you would have to buy your own film. Mm. Just thousands of dollars, right, to purchase it and then get it processed and transferred. Mm. At least processed, because um, this would have been the late 90s. So where I went, we were still cutting on steam backs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, you know... Really, you would be processing and transferring it to video, right? So hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. And at Niagara, they would cover the film. Mm. And they had like a film production program, but they also had a television production program. Mm-hmm. And they were very intertwined. So you just got to make a bunch of stuff. It was just a constant stream of making stuff. And learned so much and had so many great experiences. And... Um, uh, that was like probably the first time I can remember. I think probably my one of my f- most favorite memories is probably it was after like the second day at film school, and I was walking to where I was living at the time. It was the end of the day, and so it was like the second day. So all it was really was you went to each of your classes and the instructor kind of introduced themselves and said, "This is what we're going to be covering, and here's the timeline," and then. That was it. Mm-hmm. And I remember walking home that day, just, I can't even express the like, just relief that I felt. Like, I was where I was supposed to be. Cool. And it was like, I had never, ever felt that in my life up to that moment. In fact, I'd always felt the opposite. And like, I don't think this is quite c- correct somehow. It's like, <laughs> I'm like a radio station that's not quite tuned in all the way. It's like, this isn't, I don't think it's here. And, but then it was like, went to film school and you hear about, yeah, you're going to be making films. You're going to write scripts. You're going to edit them. You're going to learn this. You're going to do that. You're going to go here. And then it's like, from that moment to now, it's like, or certainly in that moment, it was like, oh, fuck, finally. Yeah. And I was like 23. Like, I sort of went late, right? Right. Uh, and I was 23. Yeah, or 22, what I turned at 23 that year. So, yeah. 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 Oh man, it's it's funny, um, you know, when you have chats like this. That like this this just popped into my mind because um, of of that that story. Um, I also was sort of a late bloomer for like starting to gig and play music. Like I did my degree and then you know then decided you know I, I wanted to go 
be a musician and started gigging and doing open mics and then for my band and I was probably around that age too like I finished university 21 and then started you know putting the band together 22 23 and I have this very distinct memory of playing the spur way back in the day and it was with the band and it was like a super loud rowdy night and no one no one cared and I took the mic off the stand and I stood up on uh, a chair and then walked from that up onto the table and started singing this song and like made everybody care. Yeah. And then I finished the set with the band and this person came up to me and she goes, that was awesome. And I go, thank you. Thanks a lot. Excuse me for a second. And I walked into the bathroom and then urged <laughs> in the toilet like I was going to vomit because it was literally like I, I I've often jokingly thought to myself, it's literally like the doors like break on through to the other side. Like that was that was it to me as a super shy person who wanted to like connect with people through music. And I mean, it's so funny. It sounds so epic for what was like a rock band playing in a dive bar. But to me, like what was going through my head and just like trying to figure out how to like break down that that barrier, you know. That was a that was a pivotal moment for me of yeah. just learning like you can do it that it like this is cool and it's where you should be and yeah yeah and it's funny the moments that you remember like what I remember the most is quite literally the walk home right it wasn't necessarily like a film that I made at film school or whatever it was like looking up at the trees and like the wind shaking the trees like that's what I remember and right. just this great weight uh lifting off it's like it's it's almost like a sensory memory right 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 yeah. not the thing just you know yeah the the way the thing made you feel yeah and what the thing actually was like it wasn't even like that was like the second day i hadn't actually done anything yet right it was just the feeling that i had i had found my tribe right right uh especially cuz up to that point i felt that i really hadn't right i was always kind of uh, just unsure about what i was supposed to be doing right right so obviously you make a bunch of films at film school because that's what film school is what was the first thing you did once you got out first thing once i got out i guess the first real film that i made would have been a little short film called <laughs> the audience which was also i guess i don't think it was the debut but it would have been like the second time that joel hines acted right okay on film right and that was the year of the very first nickel film festival right on when was this uh, oh fuck i don't know man <laughs> a long time ago <laughs> a long time ago yes yes uh it was in black and white like all films at the time it actually was and it really? actually was <laughs> As an aesthetic choice. Good. good. I like <laughs> there it. was color film at the time. But um Silent and, though as well. No, okay. Uh no, there was there was uh, we were able to record <laughs> on Megstock, like actual Megstock. Oh, right. Uh anyways. Um uh that yeah, so that uh was probably the first non film school film that I made. Cool. And obviously the start of a relationship because you did down yeah. to the dirt, right? Like down yeah. to the dirt was your first feature. Yes. Yeah. And we made a film. We made a film in between that called Ashore. Okay. Which was an hour long, mm -hmm. and that was probably more of a um, more of a film film. Mm -hmm. And then we made Dirt, and then we made another one more film after that called uh, Heartless Disappearance into Labrador Seas. Okay. Cool. Written by Lois Brown. When you say uh, film film, I'm curious what that means. And also I think it's interesting that the film is an hour. An hour is an, uh, is an interesting length for a movie. It's It was a mistake. Completely okay. a mistake. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I don't know. I mean, um, it was a script that I had written, I guess, in film school. Okay. And I think it won the Arts and Letters Award when I got out of film school. And I used that to apply for a bunch of funding uh, at the time. Myself and Anna Petrus, who was my producing partner at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, yeah, so we got a whole bunch of funding 
for this, I guess it was like a 40 page script, mm -hmm. 45 page script. Mm -hmm. And at the time I just didn't know anything and like nobody knew anything. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody knew anything. I did not know anything. And, um, um, went and made the film, even though like everybody warned us that it's way too long to be considered a short film. So, um, it's not going to get into festivals or anything. Mm -hmm. And, um, so then we thought, well, maybe it's an hour long thing that will, will sell the television, right? Like this is pre the golden age of TV. This is like, uh, so, um, yeah, I think the final run time is 51 minutes. Mm. And I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time mm -hmm. and I'm the worst for looking at my, at my previous work. Um, so I don't know if I want to see it, right? Uh, but it was very well received. Cool. Um, by the places that did show it. Mm -hmm. And um, it was on CBC. They broadcast it a few times. And um, I think at that point in time, it was just like the previous film was like a one-day shoot. Mm -hmm. But sure, because we had gotten all this money, uh, like I got uh, a grant that doesn't exist anymore, but we got a grant from t t Telefilm. We got money from the film board, money from the province, money from the arts council. It was like, I have never to this day had a project that just got everything that it went out for. Interesting. Yeah. So that was the first film that it was like a proper crew. It was like probably 20 of us or 25 of us. And we shot for nine days. Mm -hmm. It's like when I think back now, it was like, if we shot for two more days, it would have been a feature. Right. Something that you could have sold, something that there could have been tangible upside. Of course. Yeah. Right. Right. But 51 minutes, you're just in like nowhere land. It's right. Like, it's right. like a novella, like a weird thing where it's like not it's the short story. It's even worse than a the... novella in a way because a novella is a novella. It's like you're allowed to have novellas. Right. This is a. But a what are the 50 time. minute films? Like there are none. You know what I mean? <laughs> They're episodes of a series, is what they are. Right. So, yeah, that's right? true. That's true. Yeah. And you're right. And nowadays, the, the, even there will probably be more avenues for it because. Anything can be any length. It's true. And like not to get off on another tangent, but one thing that I would love to see in the streaming world is in fact the one hour movie. Mm -hmm. Like I've said that to people and like most of like my hardcore filmmaker friends hate the concept. Mm -hmm. I love it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like the 68 minute movie, the 57 minute <laughs> movie. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love the most about the streaming era and shows is that they can have whatever run links. Like it can be, um, they can go up or down. It's like you can have a 41-minute episode, you can have a 68-minute episode. It's not as rigid as it always was. Right. And I think that helps the creative, right? I think that that helps you tell the story. It's like you don't have to pad an episode. Right. To reach your page 42 or 46. And you don't have to cut, 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 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and I find that really cool and exciting and like, um, yeah. Well, let's go on this tangent because this makes me think about something that I've I've had the conversation a few times on this podcast of just sort of mediums and how they evolve and um, how... There's always a cycle to things, of course, or a pendulum swing, whichever analogy you want to look at. And I think that the only difference between the past and now is how quickly that cycle is happening or the pendulum is is moving, right? So um, one way uh, that, that I think is, is very clear is like the death of people's cable packages for originally Netflix and everything we could want on Netflix and YouTube. And now what we're seeing like between now and next year how you could easily equal your old cable bill with the number of streaming services that will exist. Like that's coming back around. Big time. And I think about artistically what you're talking about where like Netflix could have, you know, a 51 minute movie, for instance, but they don't. Like Netflix could have shorts, but they don't, right? And I wonder if that thing that we all believed in the digital world of like it's all freedom because everything's free, you know, but it's like easy to make. Like I can record a record at home, blah, blah, all the things you're sold as the, this is the beauty of technology now. And there is a truth to that, but is, 
is that actually going to go back around to the cycle of, well, since the algorithms dictate what people watch and listen to anyway, will it turn out just as conservative as, as we viewed the previous broadcasters? You know, like it's not really going to make it's not really going to make a difference that technically can all be up there if the algorithms are always going to push the most mainstream stuff to the top and like the fringe stuff that could benefit from even just being there doesn't even make it there. Yeah, I feel like in music, that's more of an issue. Definitely. And you could definitely, I'm sure, talk on that. Mm -hmm. But in film, it's like the only way to get these things financed at a meaningful level is to have uh, recognizable names in them. Mm -hmm. And the financing structure out there, certainly my experience anyway, casting is essentially all they care about. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, the script has to be good and the team and everything like that but like nothing carries the weight of cast mm. if you had great uh if if you had a great tandem or trio of like recognizable bankable names it's like they're gonna forgive a lot of sins or a lot of imperfections in the rest of your pitch mm. so i think in that sense that definitely has not changed mm -hmm. so in terms of like, really, it's just, it'll kind of be the same as it always was in that, you know, all the power is going to lie with these five or six or eight or 10 c c companies. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's p playing out that way, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But in terms of streaming for film, it's like, I think there's another, and I have no earthly idea what it is, but I feel like there's another act that's yet to come. Because mm -hmm. it's like act one was like Netflix and streaming and Netflix was everything. Right, it was like a clearinghouse of everything. Right, Netflix and YouTube. Right, and now Act Two is all the companies have smartened up and been like, "Oh my God, streaming is all there is, really. How could we have missed this?" So now Apple is going to stream, and Disney is going to stream, NBC is streaming. So now, if you want all of the stuff that previously you got on Netflix and YouTube, now you've got to subscribe to seven services. And it's going to be a hundred bucks or 150 exactly. bucks, which is equivalent to the cable bill. And so really we'll still be complaining about, I wish I could just have the app or the shows that I want exactly. and not have to have any, any of these thing, other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I, so that is going to happen. And I think, uh, I've read about this recently that I think is also, you can't put too, uh, large a point on this. It's going to give piracy, a comeback, mm. right? Because Netflix, there's a great um, stat that any country Netflix uh, started in, mm -hmm. piracy was cut by 50% almost immediately, mm -hmm, right? Because mm -hmm. if you offer people ease and selection, they won't go to the torrents, mm -hmm. right? And I've always thought music was a few years ahead of film in these ways, like that yes. cycle, right? You think about like Napster, and that sort of initial collapse of the music industry, followed by, you know, basically the people who used to work at record labels going like, well, what if we made it as easy and cheap as possible to just get the music? People's morality will kick in. Their consumer morality, if such a thing exists, where they'll go, well, we, we can get it for 10 bucks a month, so why not just get it? And it's so funny to me to think about... Um, how many things are similar between music and film, like staggered by just a few years, like the gradual but fairly steady, well, the, the drop in cost of gear, for instance, right? So the idea of like, you know, now you can make a mu an album in your basement and then like film, it seemed very closely followed with like, now look at the new camera that's come out that's like only three grand, but it equals a $50,000 camera years ago and... So there's this fascinating like parallel race of like the art has become more worthless, but it's also become significantly cheaper to make. When I say worthless, I'm talking about financially, I guess, yeah. more difficult, not worthless, but financially more difficult to earn money from. But the gear has also gotten cheaper. I, I wonder where that race ends up in the end. Does it go Mad Max or Star Trek The Next Generation? <laughs> That's the question. That's the question. Right? Yeah. Like, is yeah. this going to be like... Me, like Data, giving my little recital and 10 forward, but I go back to my other job because money doesn't really exist and that's how we do our things? Or is it just complete collapse of 
of art and culture and how we consume it. Answer it now, Justin. I know you have this answer. 42. <laughs> That's perfect. my answer. All right. And the podcast is all. Good night, everybody. Yeah, no, I mean, I think about that uh, a lot. Well, I mean, I think about music a lot mm-hmm. in terms of that. Like, I would love to make a film, a documentary about streaming mm-hmm. because I want to feel good about streaming, right? Mm-hmm. I have a lot of uh, musician friends. I wish I was a musician, mm-hmm. right? If there's like an alternate reality of myself that I like pretend I am as I'm drifting off to sleep. <laughs> it's a musician. Right. Uh and um, I want to feel good about streaming, right? Because right. I love, love, love Spotify. Right. F- as an audiophile and a fan and just having access to all this music, like learning, like uh, finding new bands. Mm-hmm. And like, I just love it, man. And I want to feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel bad about it. I don't want to feel that I am uh, making it harder for somebody to write songs. Right. right? And I think there's a film to be made there because like streaming or the music industry, I suppose, has had a very interesting journey, right? And that for a lot of the 90s, uh, after Napster and all that stuff, like uh, recorded music lost almost all of its value. Mm -hmm. Like literally it's monetary value. It's like it went from everybody had to pay 20 bucks for a CD to nobody had to pay anything. Mm Mm-hmm. And the music industry collapsed. I mean, they lost, I mean, like, uh, I don't know the exact number, but like 50% of their, like, did their, like, collective revenue drop Mm -hmm. in like a seven or eight year period, Mm -hmm. right? And then iTunes came along and now Spotify and Apple (laughs) Music and it's returned value to recorded music. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, perceived value, I guess. And this is where I think the film is. Right. Right? Because right. I pay my nine ninety nine a month to Spotify. Right. And from where I'm sitting, as like somebody who's not a music executive, I pay my nine ninety nine a month. And it, it goes into this giant black box. Right. Does my nine ninety nine. Right. And it comes out the other side to the rights holder. Uh uh point zero 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 seven six yeah and i'm fascinated to know what happens inside the box right like where does that money go like literally granularly like where does that nine dollars 99 cents it go because i've got a feeling that it's not the streamers that are the villains in the story it's not spotify it's the labels and the rights holders of the music like Mm -hmm. the people who are on the other side of the recording contract that the artist has to sign yeah well i mean i thought about this related to to netflix the exact same question and maybe you can answer this for me because i watch a movie on netflix i pay my 9.99 or whatever it is now on netflix and i can watch as much as i want yeah and i know how much movies cost to make yeah and yes, I know everyone has Netflix, but I also know that like there's movies on Netflix that cost $500 million each, and there's many of them. And I'm like, in my head, even though I haven't sat down to run the numbers, it makes no sense to me. There's no way that they can... Not that Netflix is paying for those movies to be made, but even just like the license fees on some of the things that are there, like what they must be paying versus recouping recouping sales like do you have any idea how well, that actually plays out down to the dirt was on netflix for years uh it's been moved over to gem now okay. but it was on uh, netflix for a lot of years and we never saw a payment of any kind really right? no wow and but we, i thought it was a pre-license they had to pay you to license it for a period of time yeah but we had a distributor on that film oh, okay right mongrel media right so and i have no idea what they ever got from Netflix, but certainly they're at the top of the recoupment schedule, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's um, what happens inside the box Exactly, is a fascinating question. Yeah. And then what ways is there to, like, reform it, right? right? And I can, like, I'm passionate about films, obviously, but in terms of this streaming of fairness i'm just way more kind of sympathetic to the musicians mm. right 
because whatever the system of trickle down is, like we have to take care of the songwriter essentially. Right. Like at the very beginning of all of this is the dude with his, or lady with their acoustic guitar yeah. sitting at their kitchen table. And if they can't sit at the table because they got to go be a bartender or a lawyer or a teacher because there's not a living to be made in this, mm. the world is losing stuff. And that's the end of part one. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Tune in next week when you'll get to hear part two of my conversation with Justin Sims. Please like or subscribe this podcast on your favorite podcast app and rate it if possible. See you again next time.